are diving back into the Gospel of Mark this morning, and uh, we're going to carry, we're going to cover something that can be pretty scary, especially the first time that you hear it. There are some scary words, there's some very scary phrases um, that you will hear over the years um, going to church. Phrases like Antichrist. Antichrist is scary to me. Um, we don't know who, who it is. We don't know when he's going to arrive on the scene. Is it Elon Musk? Is it not Elon Musk? Um, we're not really sure. Um, next, next one is false prophet. False prophet is scary to me because we live in a day and age where there are people that are taking the gospel and they are shifting it and they are trying to fit it into getting something out of people instead of introducing people to our King Jesus and really transferring them, walking them into true life. They're trying to give them this package of true life that's actually fake. And so when it comes to this term, this phrase, false prophet, that one that's scary to me, God, don't let me be deceived, but also that's a heart check for me as a pastor. God, don't let me deceive. Third scary, scary phrase, that is lake of fire, okay? Anybody ever heard of lake of fire? It's, it's towards the end of the book. Um, here's the deal. I'm a big fan of lakes. I like what goes down on lakes. I like fishing. I like boats. Grew up around lakes. Grew up around boats. All really good. Um, I'm not a big fan of every part of, of a lake. Um, you see this, this aspect of lakes where I come from, um, and you can't really see, but like a foot to five feet out, you can't really see in that, that range of distance. Um, there's a lot of algae. There's a lot of other stuff in the water. It's probably best if we didn't know everything that was in there. But, man, like an alligator gar, you're swimming. An alligator gar come bite your toe off, and you wouldn't even know it until it, like, popped up out of the water and showed you, hey, this is your toe right here, okay? Um, that's how I feel about lakes. It's love-hate, okay? Are they awesome? Can they be fun? Yeah, until you get in, okay? And then... It gets a lot scarier. You're just not really sure what's going on down there. Um, and then you add fire into the mix, and I'm just really, I'm out altogether. So, no thanks, lake of fire. Um, there is another phrase, and that is unpardonable sin or unforgivable sin. And this is a big one. This is what we're going to focus in on today. But I first heard this phrase as a seventh grade boy, okay? I'm a seventh grade boy in church, and I hear about the unforgivable sin for the first time. And I just start going through the catalogs of sin in my life. And I'm like, I'm going to hell. I'm going straight to hell. As soon as this service is over, I might not even make it through the rest of my life. Um, I'm not sure what the unpardonable sin is. Our uh, small group leader at the time, it was, it was my group, 7th and 8th grade boys. Guess what? We were all going to hell. Um, great, great behavior in that group. Um, he didn't really fully explain what this um, idea of this unforgivable sin was, and really it was pretty smart of him. If he just kept it real ambiguous, then we would just have to be on our best behavior from that point forward. And so we really never got an explanation. We really never got a uh, good definition. Also, that I'm pretty sure he was a sophomore in high school, so what does he know anyways? Um, so it, it has remained pretty scary to me in my life ever since. But we've got to ask ourselves a question, and that question is, why are these phrases so scary? These phrases are scary to us because they remind us in our lives that sin is sure. There is sin in our lives, that we have sinned. There is sin that has been sinned against us. There is sin in people around us. And because of that sin, judgment is coming. Now, why should this unpardonable sin or unforgivable sin phrase cause us to pause and pay attention even more so? It's because once this sin is committed, it can't be 
forgiven. You can't walk this thing back. It can't be undone. It is go to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. It is final. And so today we try to look at the text. We try to answer two questions, and that is, is there really a sin that can't be forgiven, number one? Number two, can a Christian actually commit this sin? But before we get real serious, I did a little survey this week. I wanted to know within our church, what is something that we consider to be unforgivable? And then let's get a little bit lighter. What are some non-negotiables that we have that we would just say are unforgivable in our relationships? And I can't relate to you if this is something that you do. So on a serious note, the unforgivable things amongst our people that we say, if this happens in this relationship, it is going to be really hard for me to forgive this and then move forward alongside you. And uh, surprisingly, surveyed quite a few families, and they all came back the same on this side of things. Then they drastically changed. The first, infidelity. Infidelity, because that breaks the bond in a, real, in a relationship. Number two, lying. Lying because that takes a relationship and breaks it apart too, and now I can't trust you from this point on moving forward. Number three, the hurting of innocence, whether that be a person, whether that be a child. Number four, manipulation. Manipulation across the board in this church, not, not really uh, looked upon in a good light. Pretty frowned upon across the, the entire spectrum. And then three, uh, not three, but finally, um, I was not expecting these three responses to come in under such a serious note. I'm getting lying, infidelity, hurting innocent people, manipulation, and then all of a sudden I get a text message and that blue bubble pops up and it says, the Cruciatus curse, the imper imperious curse, and Avada Kedavra, okay? If you're laughing, w welcome to Asante Church. If, if you are lost right now, just go watch all seven Harry Potter movies, and uh, you'll be caught right back up. On, uh, on the less serious side, though, there, is, uh, there are some non-negotiables that were communicated this week, and these are just too good um, not to communicate this morning. And so as I do, if this is something that you can relate to, you say, I absolutely detest people that do that, you can say amen. But if I'm describing your way of life, you just say ouch, okay? <laughs> All right, so waiting to merge until the very last second. <laughs> amen or ouch? Okay, look, we got three lanes on 60 to get into the neighborhood now. We didn't always I almost lost my salvation a few times just getting on to 163rd. I'm kidding. That cannot happen. It is sealed. I'm good. Um, what makes it worse, though, is when they not only wait until the very last second to merge, but they don't use a blinker. Um, when I get to heaven, I'm going to talk to the Lord about that one. Can we change this to unforgivable sins? Because I think that should be one. Uh, number two, talking, taking calls talking on the phone with it on speaker in a public place. Um, <laughs> amen, right? Come on. What are we doing right now? Um, I'm going to take it a, a step further. Listening to music or watching a video, um, doing that just full blast, no headphones in, uh, that's all just completely ridiculous. It is 2024. Headphones are doing real well right now. A lot of them don't even have wires anymore. Um, I think we should take advantage of those. Um, third thing here, and if you do this, we need to talk, and I'll pray for you after service. You might be a psycho. Uh, people that don't put salad dressing on their salad. Amen. 
Look, we had two ouches in the first service. I feel much safer in here, okay? Uh, look, ranch dressing is really good. Uh, Italian dressing, really good. Balsamic vinaigrette, uh, real fancy and real good. We should take advantage of all of them. Otherwise, we're just full-grown rabbits, okay? Um, also, vegans. I feel like just vegans across the board, that's pretty scary as well. Um, Maybe, maybe some parents in the house, we can get some amens here. Uh, leaving the lights on in the room that you just left and you don't plan on going back into. I heard a lot of like, ah, on that one. Okay, I'll take that as an amen as well. Um, and this is, a, it's, this is a little bit smaller, but this was certainly me growing up, definitely in high school days. Um, if, if you don't like my favorite TV show, we probably can't be friends. Okay, my favorite TV show then was Lost. Okay, if, if we couldn't figure out if they were still alive or if they were dead together, what is this island, what's going on, I didn't want to have a relationship with you, okay? Um, but Rachel really liked it. We got married. Things are going great. Um, haven't watched it since. So that is just a few of the uh, unforgivables and non-negotiables here at Asante Church. If that looks like you in your life, you are in a good place. Welcome. Welcome. I can't wait to worship in the Word now with you the rest of this morning. We're going to be back in the uh, book of Mark. We're going to be Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30 today. But before we dive back in, we kind of have to catch up because we went over a lot of Scripture for a few weeks. And so here we are, uh, the Gospel of Mark, week 14, um, and we're only at chapter 3. So this is going to take us a while. We'll probably continue to take some breaks, but here's what has happened on the road so far Quick recap, Jesus has been preaching and he has been teaching on the kingdom of heaven. Everybody is gathered around him anywhere he goes. Uh, man, it's just crazy. Everybody gathers around Jesus. Why? Not because they want his teaching, but because they want his miracles. Jesus wants to give them eternal things through his teaching, through his preaching on the kingdom, but they only want the temporal things. They only want the things that can help them in the moment. And this happens over and over and over again. Then Jesus runs up against some Sabbath situations. His disciples don't fast on the Sabbath. He heals a man on the Sabbath. The scribes and the Pharisees, they take issue with this. They go after him. And then Jesus calls his 12 disciples. After Jesus calls his 12 disciples, he returns home, and it's not really his home. It's the home base for their ministry operations in Capernaum, and that is at Peter's house. And he sits down to eat, and he gets swarmed. The people gather around them so much that Jesus cannot even continue to eat his meal. At this point, even Jesus' family think, man, he has absolutely lost his marbles. And then we land in verse 22. Jesus has been causing such a ruckus everywhere he goes that the religious academics and the scribes come to Jerusalem just to investigate what is going on. And their claim is absolutely insane when it comes to what they say about Jesus. And so Mark chapter 3, verse 22, we will dive in. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. Kind of fast forward all the way to verse 30. This kind of sandwiches our uh, sermon this morning. Verse 30 says, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So their conclusion of Jesus and of his ministry up to this point is that Jesus is a demon-possessed apostate that needs to be silenced quickly. Within all of this, 
we're going to kind of take a roadmap. We're going to GPS our way to throughout this scripture to this final destination of this unforgivable sin. But what we see at this point is that this unforgivable sin reveals something in the scribes. And what it reveals is a hard heart that calls good evil. Let me say that again. This direction, this getting closer to this unforgivable sin reveals a hard heart that calls good evil. What is it that they say about Jesus? They say he has Beelzebul in him. For them, this translated, this is like saying that Baal, the prince of demons, meaning the Lord of the house or Lord of the temple, is within Jesus. They are saying that Jesus is a ruler of a house or a dynasty of demons. That's why he has power over them, because he is in charge of them, because he is possessed by one of these demons. They are saying that he is controlled by Satan himself. All of his teaching, all of his healing, all of his delivering, all attributed to Satan. Now, it would be one thing if this was just a one-time deal, but it certainly isn't because in verse 22 and in verse 30 where it says they were saying, this is in its imperfect tense, which means they were continually saying this. This was not just a one-time offense. They constantly looked at what was purely good in the ministry, in the teachings, in the miracles, in the delivering of demons out of people in Jesus, and they looked at what was purely good, and they said, that is purely evil. Here's what this means, that those that were on their way to being guilty of this unpardonable sin, that they undeniably see the miraculous work of the Spirit of God, and then they consistently and hard-heartedly attribute it to the devil. They say, this is Jesus, and this is purely good, but instead of actually seeing it for what it's worth and taking it all in and wondering at it and praising and worshiping and following him as these 12 men have, what they say is, no, that is the devil, and he is demon-possessed. So let us, as a church, look at the things of God in our lives, and let us praise God for those things. But let's also remember that we live in a day and age where there are things that are going to parade in light that are actually not God at all, but that are actually demonic at their core. And so let us pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, that we would have discerning hearts, discerning minds to say, to look at something and say, you know what, that is of King Jesus. Or you know what, that is not of King Jesus. But when it comes to the work of God within this church, when it comes to the work of God through this church and other places where we can undeniably see Jesus in action around us, let us not stop and question it. Let us lift up our praise to God and say thank you for what you are doing as you move in our midst. Let's not miss Jesus, but when we're presented with the truth, let's praise him for who he is. Then we see that Jesus responds, verses 23 through 27. Um, this is that influencer that's all over the internet right now that gives um, fast food hacks where he's uh, in his bathroom mirror and he scrolls in on his phone. He says, hey, hey, and he kind of gives you this like brief outline of what this little 15-second video is going to be about that I'm going way too much detail on. It's already past 15 seconds of detail for this 15-second video. And he says, hey, come here, come here. And he, and he kind of zooms in the camera. Hey, hey come here. Not, not, that's too far? Too far? Or you know what? Come here even further. That's exactly what Jesus is doing right here. 
Mark 3, 23 through 27, and he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. We have two parables here that Jesus gives us. And within this first one, it says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Have you ever heard that before? Who said it? Abraham Lincoln. You know who always gets credit for that? Speaking of giving credit to the wrong place? Abraham Lincoln. They're not like Abraham Lincoln, Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott, Jesus, okay? It is always Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln stole this from Jesus. So what does this mean? A house divided against itself cannot stand. It means that Jesus hits them with logic. How would Satan go against himself? He absolutely would not. He absolutely cannot if he stands a chance against the kingdom of heaven. It makes zero sense. If Satan were attacking his own kingdom, it would not advance. And if we look at this time all the way until our time, we see that year after year after year, the kingdom of darkness advances here on this earth. If Satan is building his kingdom through chaos, through enslavement, then why in the world, if that is his number one strategy, would Satan then go and set his own people free from it through this person, this prophet of Jesus. He absolutely would not. What does this reveal about this unforgivable sin? It reveals an intentional spiritual blindness on behalf of these scribes. What they are saying is, I've been presented with the, with the proof, I've been presented with the truth, but my mind is made up. Do not give me the facts. I want to go and I want to chase down my biases. They were presented with it over and over again. It was put right before their faces and over and over again. They not only said, no, I don't believe that, but they said, I acknowledge this and I'm going to attribute it to the enemy. For us, for us, this raises two questions. The first question is, is my kingdom divided against itself? You see, when we fall in line with Jesus, when we submit ourselves underneath his rule, his reign, and become a part of his kingdom, he entrusts certain things to us. One, ourselves. He entrusts our families to us. He entrusts our work to us. He entrusts our re relationships to us, and those things make up our kingdom. But our kingdom must remain a part of his kingdom. Otherwise, it goes into the other kingdom. It becomes divided, and it falls against itself because the two do not come in alignment under the same ruler, under the same king. And so when it comes to ourselves, are we divided? Are we divided as individuals against ourselves? Are we divided in our thoughts? Are we divided in our actions? Kings? Queens, what about our families? What about our leadership within the home? What about our leadership within our marriage? What about our love and our care to the people that God has entrusted us with? What about your presence? And I think so often, especially 
in a day and age and a culture like we live in right now, it's so easy to say, I'm going to protect, I'm going to provide for my family, and we say that is my role within this kingdom, and we completely forget about our presence within the family, which is how we show them that they matter to us, how we show them that they love us, and we say that actually protecting and providing, that's all that I bring to the table, and really all, of our, all that our family actually wants is our love, and so if we are letting our protecting, our providing, if we're letting our work, everything outside of that take away from our actual time with our family, how are we actually going to lead and rule well as people that have been submitted to the leadership and the ruling of Jesus. How are they ever going to experience it? We have to ask ourselves, are we divided? And that's just us as individuals over the family. When we actually look at our family, have we submitted our family's well-being to the king? Have we submitted their actions to the king? Look, you know better than I can. Your kid goes off to school. You don't know what kind of call you're going to get. You don't know what they're going to say, what's going to happen at recess. I submit your actions, the actions of this recently saved, still working out their salvation child, to you, Jesus. And I trust that you will look after them. I trust that you will take care of them as I send them out. We do the same with their salvation. Jesus, I trust the salvation of this little one to you. Maybe you have a, a spouse. Maybe you have a family member that doesn't follow the Lord yet. Jesus, I trust in your time, in your way, that this person will come to know you. It may be under my leadership, under my ruling of this little kingdom that falls under your kingdom that you see that through. But there has to be an alignment with God's kingdom for that to happen. Don't lose everything because you were out of alignment. Don't lose everything because your house was divided against itself in all of the houses that you oversee. Second question, am I refusing to see and acknowledge the truths of God set before me? Look, has God been calling and have I been refusing to hear the phone ring? Ring, 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 ring. What do we do before we knew Jesus? Could be for a lot of us, we just hit silent. I'm going to silence this ring. God, I can't deal with this conviction right now. I can't deal with your calling. I just need to stay where I'm at. I need to keep my head down. But for the believer, there is a point in our lives where eventually, eventually we picked up the phone. Eventually we answer. Has God been moving right before your eyes? As I look around this room, some of the families here that I know so much about, and I've been able to live so much life alongside these past few years. Man, God has been moving in our midst. Think of the people that we once were. Think of, by God's grace and sanctification, the people that we are in Jesus now. Think of the church that we once were. Think of, by God's grace, the church that we are now. Think of how God has been moving, not just in our families, but in this community, in this church. Let us not look at these things and just ignore them. Let us not look at these things and say, oh, that's just what happens when a bunch of Christians come together. Let us look at these things and say, God, this is only because of you. So I continue to submit it to you, and I continue to say, yes, amen. Praise you for what only you could do. And for everyone, I say, don't blow this off. It's just some guy in a plaid shirt that matches Jeremy's plaid shirt on stage. Did they coordinate that? I'm not sure. We didn't, but we did think it was cute, okay? 
we got to wrestle with these things. We got to wrestle with them because this is our reality. You're given the kingdom. You have leadership, you have rulership. Rulership, you have rule over that kingdom. Submit it to the Lord. And where you've submitted it and God has used it, man, praise him for it all the way through. Parable number two. Jesus then goes into the parable of binding the strong man. I think this just kind of got me all twisted up as a, a seventh grade boy. Again, I was already like, we, we got that unforgivable sin coming. I don't even know what this strong guy's doing. Is he getting bound? I don't even know what being bound is, but we'll, we will figure that out this morning here in verse 27. Binding the strong man. Basically what Jesus is saying here is that Satan is the strong man, that Jesus is the one breaking into his house. This was a little B and E happening here, a little breaking and entering. Um, happened so much that the devil might as well just put beads, just beads for a front door, okay? Um, Jesus is breaking into this house, into the realm of the enemy. And what is he going to do? He is going to steal. He is going to plunder. What is it that he is there to steal and to plunder? Let's start with what he is going to plunder. And that is sin. That is sickness. That is death. That is demon possession. That is all of the things that exist within that realm, within that house, that are evil and that are wicked. But he didn't just come to plunder. He also came to steal, and his stealing is actually a rescue. What does he come in to rescue? He kicks the door in, and he comes in to rescue humans that have been enslaved by evil. Because humans that have been enslaved by evil are the possession of the enemy. Those are the things that he owns. And Jesus says, not on my watch will I let this little one go astray and stay under that possession. But I will through my life, through my perfect life, through my love, give my life up for them so that they can then be set free. So what is Jesus saying? Who is strong enough to do this? Who is strong enough to bind the strong man? Who is strong enough to bind the enemy so that he can plunder, so that he can steal? Only one. Only one ever. And that is our king. And that is exactly what he did for us when he snatched us out of the grasp of the enemy, out of the grasp of sin in our lives, out of lives that were bound for hell. That's what he did on the cross. That's what he did in his victory when he rose from the grave three days later. Victory over sin, victory over death, victory over the enemy. What Jesus was stating to these scribes is that he has come, that he will bind Satan and that the Son of God has come to destroy Satan's work. And even still, the scribes deny it. And in their denial, they only prove even further their point of spiritual blindness. We move on. Last two verses this morning, Mark 3, 28 and 29, we have two, two groups of blasphemy here. Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. That's where we got scared in seventh grade right there. What does that mean? But is guilty of an eternal sin. An eternal sin, man, that goes, that goes on forever. Uh, I had a little record growing up in school. That doesn't get wiped off your record when you go up to middle school, okay? That eternal sin is going to stay there. So what does that look like? What is this mark against us? What is this blasphemy? William Lane says that this blasphemy is an expression of defiant hostility toward God. 
an expression of defiant hostility toward God. And so there are two groups now of these violent hostilities towards God. Group one, that's all sin and all blasphemies except one. That is every bit of sin from the least of sin to the greatest of sin. And this is something that we need to wrap our minds around as believers that think in terms of our judicial system and not in the king's judicial system. And that is basically that sin is weighted. We can say, okay, um, lying is a sin. But a white lie, that's like a, that's like a quarter of a lie. And so maybe that's just a quarter bad um, that I'll get against me. And so maybe a white lie is like all the way down here. But then murder, murder is pretty bad. Murder is, it was part of this list of unforgivable things that we would say, you can't move past that. Not here. Um, murder is probably way up here. But in all actuality, from the lowest of light sins to the deepest, darkest sin that we could ever commit, God sees those on an equal level. Sin is not weighted in God's eyes. And so all sin is grouped together. All blasphemies, but one grouped together into this first group. And what does he say? All of those, the children of men, will be forgiven. He's saying that what I will go and do as I take the cross, my blood spilled out, will cover you. You will have total and complete forgiveness from all this. But this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that is something that never leaves your record. And what we see here is we've kind of taken turn after turn as we finally get to this unforgivable sin and really look at it as the final destination see, okay, what is this? And at this final turn, as we turn down that street and we see this thing in plain view, it's starting to become more clear and more clear and more clear. We see that it involves a verbal declaration that is continual, but is unforgivable. Daniel Aiken says this, to knowingly and willingly and persistently attribute to Satan the works of God done by and in Jesus through the Holy Spirit who testifies these truths to our hearts is to commit this unforgivable sin. So if someone speaks against the Holy Spirit verbally and continually with a malicious intent, then what that actually does is it reveals their hardened heart. And when it reveals their hardened heart, it reveals that they are actually beyond repentance. And if they are beyond repentance, then they have found themselves guilty of an eternal sin. What is this unforgivable sin? Let's boil it down to its very essence. Simply put, this unforgivable sin is unbelief. I'll say it again, this unforgivable sin is unbelief. Okay, well now that makes sense. Because how can you be forgiven in something that has presented itself to you as the rescue over and over and over again? And you have not only just distanced yourself from it, you've not only just said, I don't believe that, but you've actually gone against it. You said, I do identify this. I do see it for what it is. I've been presented with the proof. I know the truth. And I'm actually going to say that's actually not what it is. It's actually the opposite of that. I'm going to look at this thing that is purely good, that was done for me, that is a gift. And I'm going to say that's actually a work of the enemy. And you do that time after time after time. Because every time the Holy Spirit comes to us in this theological idea that is called regeneration, he is knocking at the door. And he's saying, hey, your house is on fire. 
you need to let me in. Hey, it's not okay for you to live in there. I'm here with rescue. The fire department is right behind me. Let us save you. And what Jesus is saying these scribes are doing is they're looking at their ring doorbells. They're looking back at the fire. And they're saying, no, I'm good right here. It's like a boat coming to rescue you as you're treading water in the middle of the ocean. And you're not only saying, I don't believe in boats. I don't believe in flotation devices that can save me. But I think that boat is a tank. And I think that boat should actually be at the bottom of the ocean. Simply put, this unforgivable sin is unbelief. But it is not questioning your faith. It is not doubting at times in your walk with Jesus. And it is not struggling to make sense of things that the Bible puts before your face. Those are the things that when handled right, those are things that when you go and you look for the answer, that those are the things that actually grow us in our faith. So don't let the enemy wrap you up in, oh, I must have committed an unforgivable sin because I've questioned, because I've doubted, because I've struggled through some things in my life. No, that is not it. The unforgivable sin is unbelief. And when it comes to these scribes, they have been presented with the facts. They have seen the proof. They have wrongly attributed it, and they have willfully rejected it. And now their unbelief has put them out in the cold when God prepared for them through his son Jesus a seat at the table. C.S. Lewis says this, and if it's C.S. Lewis, uh, we just know it's true, okay? Um, he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those whom, say, whom, and those whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce. That's not in Narnia, okay? A little more heavy than uh, Mr. Tumnus there. Big question. Two questions we have to ask ourselves as we wrap up. is: can I, as a Christian, commit this sin? And the answer is no, you absolutely cannot. Because you have tasted and you have seen that the Lord is good, you have taken refuge in him, Psalm 34, 8. Because you believe, there can be no unbelief. As soon as you heard that knock, you know what you did? You answered. It may not have been the first time. Shoot, it may not have been the 15th time. But by God's grace, there was a time when you opened that door. And you said, I want to get right before the Father through the work of his Son. Question number two, what if I feel unforgivable? I'd say block out that lie with everything that you can. Pray against that lie and focus in on the truth. We are in a, the process of being washed with the word as we see in Ephesians 5. So let's wash ourselves with the word as the Lord does for us. Ephesians 5, 8 through 10. I'm sorry, Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That's your rescue statement. God, knowing everything that you have ever done. Jesus, 
knowing every sin that you would ever commit, still willingly, lovingly took the cross for you. That means you can't be too bad. That means you can't be too broken. He saw that. He made you clean. He put you back together. He repurposed you. And he said, that is mine. And he gave his life for it. So how are we to take this out into our lives, into our homes, into our families, our workplaces, into our community? How are we to be the church and display the kingdom? Four points here, real quick. Observe and believe. Number two, give God the credit and the glory. Number three, live out of Jesus' true redemption. Number four, block out any lie that you can't be forgiven. Believe. Believe, believe, believe. Continue to believe. Let's pray.